I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Anne-Martin Doucet. I also go by Marty. Marty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. Absolutely. Now, you're an environmental scientist, right? Yeah, correct. What does that mean? Uh, So environmental science is, um, how I see it, is the intersection between like a bunch of different sciences, like physics, chemistry, and biology. And it's mostly used, we we use all these sciences to answer some questions about the environment and also try to understand environmental problems. And these are mostly associated to um, the human impact on Earth, is how I see it. Excellent. That's a big nut to crack. Uh, Do you work on all of it, or do you focus on one particular uh, realm? Yeah, it's a very large umbrella. (laughs) So I focus in on environmental geochemistry, which is uh, studying how um, the earth and chemistry kind of uh, coalesce and um, interact in the environment. Excellent. (laughs) Now, um, at what stage in your career are you at? Yeah, I ju- this summer I just finished my master's here at UBC. Congratulations. Um, thank you. In hydrogeology with Uli Mayer. And I worked in collaboration with Greg Dippel in the Carbon Mineralization Lab. And so I just finished that this summer. And I was hired on by the Carbon Mineralization Lab to uh, continue my work and uh, work as a lab technician. And what is carbon mineralization? Yeah, it is the um, reactions between um, carbon and water with some base cations. And so it's looking at the precipitation of carbonate minerals at low temperatures, which low temperatures meaning um, kind of conditions at the Earth's surface. And so carbon mineralization um, is now kind of growing as a form of Uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, The one that has the most attention right now is the um, injection of CO2 into rock formations at depth. But the stuff that I focus on is looking at carbon mineralization occurring at the Earth's surface. And so, uh, yeah, so the carbon mineralization, um, very specifically, is just the reactions between carbon and cations like magnesium and calcium and to form a carbonate mineral. That's really exciting. That's going to clean the atmosphere, right? <laughs> we That's the hope uh, that it's a, just a small piece of the larger carbon capture puzzle. Well, I mean, we're going to need many different pieces if we're going to uh, clean up this climate mess we've got. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you just finished your master's. Was your undergrad degree also in um, environmental science? Yeah, so I started, uh, yeah in environmental sciences at the University of Ottawa. Um, and I, that's where I focused in on environmental geochemistry, but also I had a focus in ecotoxicology, uh, which are big words. <laughs> but I didn't take many, um, I, d- I didn't learn much about ecotoxicology, so I, I don't really use that as a way to describe myself. Is that like poison frogs? Basically, but also how 
humans are poisoning the earth and like learning more about that, I guess. Um, <laughs> Less <yeah>. exciting. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I started in environmental sciences and at the University of Ottawa, there's three focuses that you can have. Um, there's the geochemistry one and then there's the conservation and biodiversity uh, kind of focus in uh, environmental sciences. And then the last one is climate change, which is the like the third focus that the University of Ottawa um, has. And so during this time, during my undergrad, I was able to gain a lot of knowledge and learn a lot about just the large umbrella of environmental sciences while focusing in more on geochemistry. That's really cool. And again, really important and relevant to today's uh, global conditions. Yeah, I do think so as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, I suspect I know the answer to this one, but what got you into environmental science? Yeah, a really good question. Um, as a young uh, kid in primary school, and also near my house, there was this big forest and ravine that I used to play in a lot. And I think this is just a common, it seems like a common story for a lot of people in environmental sciences, but I was just so drawn to being outdoors and spending a lot of time um, kind of in this forest. And I just thought it was just so beautiful. And then as you grow up and learn about Um, human impact on the earth or just like the interactions between human and earth um, you realize that it just like was something that I was drawn to and I really wanted to be a part of um, just learning more about how we could do better for the earth and work with the earth and within it than be um, extracting from it and degrading it and so that's was was my draw originally. So you've been, um, yeah, you've been an environmental scientist for a long time then. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> yeah, I guess drawn into it at a young age, but I think <laughs> I was learning more and more about it in late high school. I don't think I really understood um, what it meant back in the day, but um, yeah. Excellent. And uh, do you get to go out and experience nature a lot with your work, or is it mostly lab-based uh, research? Yeah, that's a great question. I am really fortunate that a lot of the work that I do is uh, field-based. I was able to work in really beautiful corners of the world. A lot of it is North America, but I did do research in the field. Excellent. What was your favorite place to do uh, research? In my undergrad, I was a field technician for a herpetology lab, uh, which is the study of reptiles and lizards. And we, I worked with two PhD students doing their work in Arizona in the Chiricahua uh, mountain range. And that was really my introduction to doing field work and field assistance, and I loved it. And then uh, for my master's, I think I I would say that I was able to work in the most beautiful place in the world, which is in Atlin, BC, which is in, in the northwest of British Columbia. And uh, I worked on a really interesting um, feature uh, on, the, on the land surface, which is a playa. Um, and it's just a really beautiful place to be. Right in our own backyard. Exactly. Well, maybe not quite in our own backyard, but um, a distant corner of the province. <laughs> uh, speaking of field work, one of my favorite parts of this uh, interview series has been hearing about field stories. Uh, it sounds like the field is this magical place where um, crazy things happen that I'm sure are frustrating to you, but are very entertaining to me. <laughs> <laughs> Would you care to entertain me today with any uh, crazy field stories? 
Oh, I would love to. I, yeah, I've definitely had a few experiences, uh, but I'll keep them as rated PG as possible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're all very safe and uh, fine in the end. But um, yeah, one of the times that I was doing the research in Arizona and with the PhD students, um, we were working at a, at a site which is on a talus slope, which is basically at the base of a rock face where there's an accumulation of a bunch of rumbled rocks uh, that have like weathered off of the rock face on these rocks it's like a boulder field almost um uh, that's where the lizards like to live and where we studied and we were just minding our own business having lunch and a bear came out out of the bush oh, wow. and it was making a little rustling and then we were like okay there might be something close by so we like look behind us upslope and a bear was just staring at us eating lunch <laughs> through the I hope my mom doesn't listen to this, but staring through uh, the trees. And I was like, okay, like it's time to like maybe move away and like clear the area and let the bear kind of like meander. But it seemed to have been a bear that was like used to human interactions. And so um, in the end, the PhD student and I cleared the area and gave it a little bit of time before we return to do to continue our field work. Um, so that's one of the fun stories that I've had. And then another one, um, in one of the summers uh, during my master's, I did some work helping another master's student, Fran Jones, up in, again, northern BC in Cassiar, BC. And it's an old mine site, and we were working on the tailings. But we were lucky enough to use the one of the operator uh, operators it's it's a closed mine now but there's people that still work there to do some rehabilitation and they have a side by side which is one, like an arctic cat it's like a little like not an atv but an atv with like like a cover on it okay and he let us borrow it um to go up the real mine where they were extracting the rock which was located at the top of the mountain and like bc mountains are big so like we like drove this arctic cat all the way up the mountain and then we were we were just exploring this old mine site which was really cool i was like just like an afternoon break from the work that we were doing there which was pretty cool and fascinating that sounds gorgeous mm -hmm. <laughs> is that the asbestos mine yeah Acacia? correct okay. yeah um now i'm curious uh with yourself have you ever made any discoveries that you'd care to share, either uh, discoveries that were new to the scientific community or, or even something that you discovered personally that made you sit up and take notice? Yeah, um, I don't think... It's a really good question. I don't think I've discovered anything. I think I've just contributed to the to the larger kind of space in carbon mineral mineralization and also... Uh, understanding low temperature mineral precipitation and like carbon within the system or like how carbon moves through the system a little bit. I th that might be too much of a generalization, but like I think I'm just like this a very small piece to this larger puzzle. So I don't think I've really discovered anything, but I think that my work going forward could be a little bit of a, a little bit of a help <laughs> towards the greater carbon mineralization field. Well, a little bit of a help in a really important field. Um, again, this is something that we're going to need to figure out if we're going to um, secure our future on this planet. Yeah, I think so too. But yeah, I think discoveries is, is, a, is a hard thing to, to, as a master's student, you feel like you're at the bottom, you're at the bottom of the research chain. So it, it's hard to in, internalize anything like that in discoveries. So like hopefully in the future, but we'll see. Absolutely. Briefly, what are you working on right now? 
That's a great question. So in my master's, I was working um, at measuring um, CO2 fluxes, which is just the movement of the gas itself, carbon uh, carbon within air itself, um, from the atmosphere into these um, playas in northern BC that are made out of pure carbon, carbonate, carbon. And so the application of these techniques to measure CO2 moving at, from the air into the ground and from the ground into the air um, is what I'm using moving forward, looking at, instead of at a natural site, we're looking at mine sites now with um, specific material uh, that contain these base cations that we're interested in that lead to carbon mineralization. So uh, we want to apply flux methods to measure CO2 going from the atmosphere into this mine waste to see if there's a net uptake of CO2 and be able to measure it and say how much is going into the rock. And I think that's a very important part of the field right now is the monitoring and verification of CO2 uptake and being able to like understand more what's governing these CO2 fluxes between the atmosphere and the air and the rocks itself or the sediment rock. And so that's what I'm working on now. So moving from this natural site with the same method, with the methods that we're using at this mine um, site. Excellent. Now you used a couple of terms there. Um, I'd like to get defined. <laughs> yes, sorry, please. I hear the word or the term ultramafic rock all the time in this building. I still don't know what that is. And you've said uh, cations a few times. Um, <laughs> and I'm just thinking of um, non-purebred cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so ultramafic rocks are a type of igneous rock, and they form first from magma. And so they form at conditions that are incredibly different to what we see at the Earth's surface. And so without going really into detail with what the rocks are made of, they just they form at extreme, extremely different temperatures. So when they're at the Earth's surface, they'll tend to dissociate faster. Dissociate, we call it weathering, but it's how they break down faster at the Earth's surface. It still takes a bit of time. Um, and these rocks have a lot of cation, uh, base cations that we're interested in. And a cation is just an ion that has a positive charge. So it's um, an atom that has a positive charge. And what we're interested in most specifically is in magnesium, which um, I think a lot of people know, even just from a health perspective, you need magnesium as a form of something that's in your body. But uh, we like magnesium and also calcium which are two cations. Uh, yeah, so ultramafic rocks are important to us because they will dissociate faster at the Earth's surface, and they have a lot of magnesium. Excellent. And so if um, they're breaking down faster, that means they, they've got more surface area to absorb the carbon. Is that correct? Um, yes, and to take it a step further, because I, when I say faster, like relative to other igneous rocks um it still takes a long time if you have a very um a small surface area to to dissociate this min the, the minerals from uh, inside the rock so what we're interested in is uh locations on the earth that take these these rocks and break them down into smaller pieces so that there's a larger surface area so there's more weathering and dissociation that can happen and uh in to be more specific mines 
will normally take these rocks from under the Earth's surface um, to to extract the economic portion of it. And then the rest of this rock, which is of interest to us, is is which is crushed through the process of extracting the economic fraction, um, is then put into the is put into a pond or a pile on the Earth's surface. And so these rocks are then reacting with the atmosphere in very very small grains, which is good for us. Um, and so mines are more interesting uh, to our lab group. So you're literally taking mining waste and using it to um, sequester human, I was going to call it human waste, but that's not right. Um, um, Industrial waste, I guess, in the sense of carbon dioxide. Yeah, so this is occurring passively. So it's not like, it's it's something that's already happening at the Earth's surface in these uh, mine waste. Uh, And so the next step is to one, measure it, because we know it's happening, and also accelerate it. So take certain um, steps to enhance the amount of CO2 being taken up by these rocks. And I, there's a, a large team of researchers around the world that are looking into very specific parts of this. Um, and then also teams of researchers outside of what we do in our lab that are looking at um, incorporating these like materials, the mine materials in croplands as well to accelerate carbon uptake in croplands. But I'm not an expert in, in, in that side of things, but it's like, it's, it's really growing and we call this field of research um, enhanced rock weathering um, as a form of carbon capture um, and p- possibly storage at the end of it. That's really exciting. <laughs> uh, what would you say is your favorite part of this work? My favorite part of this work, um, I think it, it's motivating because it feels like a small uh, we're, we're kind of helping in a small way in the larger climate crisis that we're facing right now. Um, but I think that um, the work that I'm doing is really exciting because it's a, just a small piece to the larger climate crisis that we're facing. Um, and also, I, I find that in at least environmental geosciences, there's a lot of women that work in this field. And so I work in an amazing team of female researchers and scientists. um, And that is just very inspiring to me. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to have a supportive work environment. Um, And also, I know that the climate uh, crisis can feel very overwhelming and daunting. And um, in a sense... um, for people who've grown up with this knowledge, uh, it can feel like, well, we've known about this for so long and nothing's changed, so what's the point of fighting it? It's a lost battle. Uh, but you are actually fighting it and winning. Hopefully, in a small way. <laughs> in a small way, or contributing to yeah, the win. Yeah, contributing to the win is how I like to see it. You're gaining ground, um, which is excellent. Mm-hmm. You just touched on this. Um, Would you say that environmental science is a really open and welcoming field, or is it more closed off and insular, or is it a combination of both? Great question. Um, I I do think that um, in environmental science specifically, and where uh, the path that I've come through, um, that there's a lot of gender diversity. I think that um, I'm so glad to be part of this field in that sense, but I think there's still bounds and leaps that have to be made for like just overall diversity and people experiencing intersectionalities. Um, and so that's, I think, a really important next step for the field of specifically earth science, um, because 
I find that the people that I surround myself with have grown up with a lot of opportunities and the space to feel a lot towards the environment and climate versus uh, people that are at the inter- at the intersection of, um, of, of gender, race, and uh, LGBTQ+, and everything. They have had other things to put their minds on. And so I think that there's just a lot more um, to do for welcoming a larger, diverse group of people into environmental sciences. That's a really good observation. Um, and you could even expand it to a global sense where uh, we uh, as very wealthy nations often look down on other countries who may not be doing uh, what we think is responsible in a long-term setting. But um, long-term problems like the climate and worrying about them is a luxury that some countries and some people and some demographics simply can't afford because, like you said, they've got more pressing day-to-day issues to deal with. Um, And a long-term perspective is just, again, a luxury. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a a thing that needs to be focused on more is climate justice. Um, And I think about it a lot in, in a sense of, um, climate change is important, but also like environmental destruction and or pollution um, is also something that we need to focus on as well, not to take away from one large and very difficult disaster to think about, which is mm-hmm. climate change. But um, I think cleaning, like being more aware of all the other environmental problems that humans are slowly creating or have already created um, and looking at those will, I think, have a bunch of positive interactions and like or positive interactions between themselves to like help the overall um, global situation. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I've just. I feel like I've just opened that up way wide. But I think. <laughs> yeah, coming back down to the meat of it is that um, people at people that are at the intersections of again gender, race, and um, just LGBTQ plus. Um, I think that they, I think our field has to be more like open to that as a form of going forward and getting more ideas towards the solutions towards our environmental problems. Excellent. And do you yourself identify as belonging to any of these underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your work or research? That's a good question. From the time the time that I came into environmental sciences, which was, I think, in 2014, 2013, um, there's a lot of women in my program already. So I felt like I fit right in and I felt like I had a lot of opportunities. So I don't identify as as a population that is underrepresented in my field, at least. And I, I don't think it's impacted my um, academic path up to now. Wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Do you feel that women are the majority uh, in environmental science or um, equal in terms of numbers and and authority? Out of environment, so yeah, environmental science, I think that people that call themselves environmental scientists work in t- work as a part of teams that do other work. So it's never really like you see a large team of environmental scientists in, in at least what I've seen around. Um, but I do feel like there are uh, a lot of women in environmental geology and environmental sciences that I've seen around. Um, oh, just um, if women are the majority in, in environmental science or if it's... I would say that 
Yeah, I would say that women are the majority, at least in, in environmental science, sciences and environmental engineer, because I think there's like a component of empathy and compassion that I find that we can really bring forward into understanding that humans are causing a really, or humans in Western societies are causing these large challenges and that we um, feel a lot of, towards wanting to make things better and I think that's a really good motivator to push uh forward with um yeah trying to activate on this problem excellent uh it's been noted that um fields that are dominated by women uh, are often less respected than uh male dominated fields do you feel that um environmental science is as respected as some of the uh, other scientific fields? That's a really good question. I I feel like I should, I should stop saying that's a good question. But um, yeah, I, I, did, I did feel coming out of an environmental science degree that I would have to do more, um, more um, schooling to find a place within the the world of science and technology uh, because it's such a large I saw it always as a, such a large umbrella of uh, learnings in in undergrad that you needed to have more of a focus to find your place in the world um, but the more the more I, I kind of move through this academic path that I'm on now with my master's and, and going into as a technician I see that there's like some hierarchy um, where environmental science, sciences are at the bottom of this, this chain um, of command. And so uh, a lot of my path has told me to go more into geology so that I would have a better opportunity of work. Um, but there's a part of me that still wants to be proud like I'm very proud of being an environmental scientist and so like I've haven't fulfilled that path because I'm just always come back to wanting to stay in the same in the same field in environmental science but there is a hierarchy to it and I I know that it's going to be a lot to work towards is it because it's female dominated I can't necessarily say but I know for a fact as well that environmental engineers are also at the bottom of the food chain of engineers. And I think this is just like word of mouth and just like this general essence of the field. Um, is it, and so I, I can't necessarily answer that question, but I do feel that like there is some sort of hierarchy at least. Um, it's always tough to tell if it's because like you said, it's so large and in a sense almost vague uh, that people don't know um, what you are and what your specialty is. Um, Whereas if it's chemistry, you know, you do chemistry. Uh, if it's geology, then you do geology. But environmental science could be uh, one of many different fields. Or if it is uh, just old school racism reincarnating, um, it's tough to tell. Uh, to continue down this dark and depressing path, um, I asked you what the best part of your work is. Uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part? Yeah, one of the the more challenging parts, personally, is like as a new scientist, um, like continuing to like find my like find the path and believing in myself. I think that's like quite difficult, and um, feeling like you fit in, feel like you can contribute to it is is difficult because um, 
it, yeah, it's hard to have confidence in yourself sometimes. Um, and that's what I find the most challenging is like me fighting against me sometimes and my own mind. Overall, I think that I've had a, a very good supportive team on the outside um, during my master's, at least um, in a very good lab setting. So like those have been really p positive to push me through my challenges um, for the field itself. Um, I think some of the challenges lie within um, trying to like pick and choose what we need to attack first in terms of environmental problems. It's just so, the scope is just so large and confusing and like where, does, where to put like your most eggs in which basket to, to feel like you're contributing to the, to the greater good. And what is the greater good? of mankind so you can you can go into many spirals of like what is the greater good what's the goal here and like um think about yeah the challenges of the field is trying to get people on board and also where to put most of your energy to make something like towards a greater good it's like trying to stop a runway train by whipping pennies at it yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then also, as you can probably hear, I just, you can think about so many things and kind of go down a lot of rabbit holes to try to like explain what's happening or try to provide some sort of explanation. But in the end, we're talking about environmental science here. A huge component of it is just nature, is just nature and the earth itself. And it'll do what it wants to do at the end of the day. Um, but we don't want people to suffer from that so yeah speaking of global issues and uh human suffering um again continuing this depressing theme that i've uh, embarked on <laughs> i think i've also bled us that way too <laughs> sorry <laughs> well we're talking climate change it's not uh, all sunshine and roses um the pandemic uh how has covid19 impacted your work if at all yeah, so I, I did originally have a field project for my master's that was going to be based in um, Australia, doing some, some work there with uh, my research partner, another master's student, Fran Jones. We were going to go all the way there. Um, and that project was going to occur two months after the pandemic started in May of 2020. And that, of course, didn't happen. And so there was definitely a large 180 in terms of wanting to continue doing a field project, but keeping it somewhere more local. Um, and it, it ended up being in Atlin, which is the site of what was the main focus of my, the only focus of my thesis. And it was, it was different. It wasn't exactly what I was thinking that I was going to do, but it worked out to be really good anyways. And so there was a lot of uncertainty at the start of the pandemic in terms of, did I want to continue on did I want to continue my master's in general or like what kind of projects were going to be available um, in a time where everything was closed down. Um, but I had a really good team of uh, professors with me and also my research team, uh, the, the people in the lab as well. And so it ended up working out well. Having that support team is uh, the difference between success and failure when you're doing a higher degree um, no one person gets their PhD or their master's on their own. It takes a village. Yeah, I believe that as well. Uh, if anyone's listening right now and is feeling inspired to go into environmental science, um, 
what courses or background or even just life experience would you recommend that they pursue uh, to get a good basis and a good foundation? Yeah, um, I would say that if you go to a university that has any specializations within environmental sciences, that's going to be, I think, really important because then you get to learn about the field itself with some base courses, but then through the the years you can get a, a larger, a more specific path. And I think that's like quite important in environmental sciences is that you don't just stay under this large umbrella, that you find kind of a niche. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my recommendation. You find, you find a niche and you get to test a bunch of different parts of environmental sciences, which is nice. Um, and so you can find your path through that, but yeah, find a niche for sure. Excellent. (laughs) Um, and then again, it takes a whole village to raise a, a master's degree or a PhD, um, Who's been helping you get through your, your program? Um, yeah, so I had um, my supervisor, Uli Mayer, was um, really supportive throughout the whole process. Um, and also some of my committee members, um, Greg Dipple, Dr. Greg Dipple and Dr. Andy Black. Uh, so my, my committee itself um, was incredibly supportive and we met, uh, I met with, everyone together once in a while but I met with each person quite regularly um, and that was really helpful because I had a lot of confusing data <laughs> that they were <laughs> helping me sort through and then I had my um, master's partner Fran Jones uh, we both started pretty much at the same time and we have pushed through together and I think that was like incredibly important to me that we had this like collaborative and like supportive system but for the two of us uh, to push through and then um, the Carbon lab which is Greg Dipple's lab is has a bunch of students and researchers um, and they brought me in during the pandemic so that was really nice um, and then last lastly um, my partner Fred has been really helpful and we were both doing our masters at the same time in very different fields but I would say that having um, him as a solid rock for the whole thing was really nice and you would know all about having solid rocks <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't realize I did that <laughs> oh, what's his field uh, he is in um, genomics uh, which is the study uh, he's in plant biosciences and genomics, which is just studying, um, yeah, plants. I just say that. (laughs) And I've certainly met a few of the ladies in that lab, and they're very inspirational and um, ultra fierce and just amazing. So I can see why you draw inspiration from them. I've uh, drawn tangential inspiration from them Mm -hmm. with my brief encounters. I have goosebumps right now. I, I, I think they're really amazing to work with, yeah. Absolutely. You're at the beginning of your career, um, but I'd like you to look toward the end of it. What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire? That feels like a very big question <laughs> to get asked right after finishing a master's. Um, I, I, tr- I don't really look that far because I want things to come and fall organically as I move through uh, kind of life, I guess. Um, my legacy I I don't know if I want to leave a like 
a, a legacy or be known for anything, but I think just like being a player on the team, like being a player on the team, being part of a team that could maybe find some, a small piece to the, to the carbon capture and storage puzzle would be amazing. Um, I think, yeah, there's just so many, it just feels like it's, it can be open, but also, um, yeah, I find it hard to answer that question. I think I, you hear me stumbling through this. I think that it's hard to think of a legacy. I just want to take it one thing at a time, but be true to like what I've always wanted to do, which is um, under, like be, be a part of like lessening the human impact on the earth in some sort of way and like make sure that everyone is like all humans and the environment are can be like safe and happy nothing that would negatively impact either or (laughs) yeah perfect no i think that's a great legacy um again i'm going to get you to look toward the future um again you're just starting your career but the world is changing at an immense rate and it's not just uh, climate change but also the way in which we approach the world A professional field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable by the time that they retire. Uh, You've been doing this long enough that you've probably started to see a few changes in environmental science. Um, What trends do you see coming in the future in environmental science? Uh, Where do you see it going and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and um, get ahead of the curve? That is a bit another big question. <laughs> I haven't really thought about that at all. Um, I think it's like it's growing in. an um, I would see, I see it growing as, as an important field. A, someone as a part of a larger team that has this interdisciplinary understanding of the environment, like in making sure that they think about what's happening to the biology of the system of. Um, the chemist like chemistry contaminants like having this kind of more global understanding in a in a team setting I think these people are going to be more important when there's these teams attacking environmental problems I see I see that people are, are that this field is gaining importance in that sense of like having that global um, view of the problem in a team um, I I've been I see that as important um, but seeing how it will change in the future, I'm, I'm really not sure. I haven't thought that far in advance. <laughs> no, I love that answer. Um, it's, I think you're the first one to say that, but a lot of people have emphasized the emergence of multidisciplinarianism uh, coming down the pipe. Um, but there's only so much knowledge and so many perspectives you can pack into one head. Um, and so you're going to need uh, more heads working on a problem. There's going to be more of a, a collaborative team-based approach to solving some of these massive problems which um, no one person can solve on on their own yeah and I feel like environmental sciences have their hands in multiple pots but aren't very like like I would not be able to solve a math problem or like a physics problem but like there's people on a team that could do that and I could just be like oh this like problem is affecting this like plant system because the plants will react this way and so like having this larger sense of what's happening or what could happen and like maybe putting out some hypotheses and some questions uh while other people are very like they're very focused in on the on their specific part of the problem I think that's really important for sure Mm -hmm. 
And it sounds like a good uh, piece of advice for young people would be um, learn how to collaborate and work together with other people because these problems are way too big for one person to solve. Exactly. And I think that um, academia can be a very competitive place to be in. But being being in a team that I've seen a lot of collaboration happen, I just think that everything moves faster and for and everything's moving forward um, better when it's a team working together and collaborating. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Marty, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything you want to add or anything I missed before I let you go? Um... Yeah, I do think there's hope <laughs> um, for the world. I just always want to remember for at least myself and remind myself that I think that like humans are just one species on this planet and we're all from we're all from the same. We're cut from the same cloth. We're all the same, but also we're just the o- we're not the only ones on the planet. And I think that's so important to remember is that there's just so much more happening around us in our concrete jungles that I think that it's so important to just get out there and also just remember that we're just a small small piece to the larger earth puzzle. A great piece of advice for every every puzzle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your optimism. Thanks for sharing your insights uh, and experience and stories. And I wish you all the best in um, cleaning up the mess the rest of us have made. <laughs> Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me on. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.